Good morning. It is Friday, May 9th, and this is the Weekend Debrief. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Ted Baker. He hosts Finger Lakes Morning News, weekday mornings on Finger Lakes News Radio. We're back. We're here, socially distant once again, maintaining social distance. I think this is going to be, I, I don't think we're ever going to be able to get near each other for months, maybe a year or more. I think we both think that we've actually already had it and been done with it, so let's just hope. There is that, too. <laughs> uh, boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. Um, so this morning we talked about a few of these interesting little topics that we're going to be going through on your show. Um, but first things first, I wanted to talk about uh, the furloughs that we've seen start to happen now in uh, with some counties in the region, um, and also as that pertains to some of the counties who have not. Um, obviously it's all cost saving measure, right? Like it's, they're, they're trying to stave off the short term impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, obviously NISAC has made it very clear that counties are going to be losing in the millions in terms of, of, uh, revenue, which is going to have a big impact on the, the budget, not just this year, but next year. And as municipalities go through that budget process, governor Cuomo said that pretty much every uh, municipality, whether you're a county, town, village, or city, should plan on something like a 15 to 20% reduction in what you're able to spend um, moving forward, school districts as well. So Cuga County was the most recent to uh, announce that they have come to an agreement with their union uh, for furloughs. Uh, Ontario County, Wayne County have also started the process. Ontario County is going through this really unique voluntary furlough process, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, we're talking about dozens of employees at each, uh, at each, and it's going to obviously cost those counties a lot of uh, a lot of money. Um, it's been interesting to me to watch other counties, smaller counties, namely Seneca County, Yates County, counties like that, um, seem to co- approach this from a different angle. There's been no talk of furloughs to date in Seneca County, which I've found kind of odd given the circumstances. Um, obviously, like I said, every county is facing the same kind of economic situation, and it's not like there is a, a you know a pot of money at the other side of the rainbow. Um, so it's been curious on that front, and I keep hearing this argument that it's better to wait, or it's better to wait and take the wait and see approach rather than make decisions at the front of the sort of at the the head of the issue. I'd push back on that, mainly because I think the the problem that we've seen in the past, and, and history does tend to repeat itself, especially when you're talking about municipal government, is that um, we, we see a lot of local boards kick the can down the road. And this is one of those scenarios where if you look at Seneca County, Ontario County, Wayne County, Cayuga County, whoever it is, um, the budget process already feels rushed in an ordinary year, right? Like you, you first hear about the budget or a draft budget, maybe in late September, uh, October. Usually, one decision cycle is is what the the legislature or board is taking to mull it over, consider it, and kind of work out the the X's and O's. And then by November, they're filing one with you know with the state, and it's over with. Um, it seems like this year, especially given that NISAC has not only said that this year is going to be tough, but the two years that follow this next cycle 
are going to be just as damaging or just as damning for those entities uh, to navigate financially. It seems really short-sighted to not be having this conversation now up front, um, not only about furloughs, but about uh, job cuts, because I, I don't see a scenario where furloughs are enough. And I understand why counties are doing it and municipalities are doing it. In a lot of cases, the counties have been clear in saying that this is better for those employees by and large because uh, they can actually make more over the furlough period with the uh, Federal CARES Act little stimulus bump that's inside uh, unemployment now. So you're talking about a $600 bonus on top of the max benefit of 504 in New York State, and it's more comparable to what maybe they're making now, and in some cases, maybe more than what they're making now. But beyond that, I, I think there's going to have to be a very frank and realistic conversation about what municipalities can support, because you can't raise, you can't even, you know, this this type of uh, financial situation is not one that you can raise taxes through. You can't you know, tax your way out of this problem. I'm not even sure you can just cut your way out of this problem, given what I've seen so far. So, you know, it's probably going to take a combination of both, which is going to be a not only a really hard sell to, you know, the the folks who work in these really important departments around county government or in municipalities, but it's going to be an even tougher sell to constituents and taxpayers so why not start having that conversation now? Why not start doing that now instead of waiting, waiting, waiting? Well, you can always plan for a worst-case scenario and then say, whew, it wasn't as bad as we thought, bring <laughs> some people back to work, whatever. It's harder to go in the other direction. It's harder to say, well, we'll just kind of wait and see, and then, whoops, it was worse than we thought. What I don't understand is how anybody can even really do a budget. How do you do a budget when you don't know what your revenue is going to be. And the governor can say, plan on 15 to 20%. Based on what? Suppose between now and next Friday, there's a new wave of coronavirus, and the governor extends New York on pause out to June 15th. And suppose on June 10th, there's another wave, and it goes out to July. I mean, there, there are people, lots of experts on TV that we see every day saying that this is going to be with us for years. Someone, I, I don't, it all runs together in my mind. One expert said that, that they were looking at a 36-month horizon as far as corona goes. So, you know, maybe it's going to be 15%. Maybe it's going to be 75%. We don't even know. Yeah, I, I think it it's interesting. It goes back to... I wrote a column earlier this week on the Finger Lakes Times about how this was the opportunity for everyone on every political side to reimagine or redefine what the systems are, right? And we've obviously reimagined is a bad word to use since the governor started using it this week. Um, but it, we need to start to think about, or we should have been thinking already about what our social safety nets are, how we structure government, how what services are where and how they're being provided. Because I think moving forward, you're right. There's this real question. I mean, for the Finger Lakes, you've got this perfect uh, this perfect storm of different scenarios, right? Like you've got this situation, but compounding that is the fact that even if things do reopen fully by June, you are not going to see the volume of travelers and visitors and and tourists that this region has come to rely on 
annually to keep the economy running, to keep these municipalities whole. Uh, I recall working on a, a story three years ago now uh, in Seneca County, and, and it was sort of about the, the budget and obviously a, pri- a prior county manager administration then. But it was interesting. His his sentiment was that the, the county is, like a lot of counties in the region, a little overexposed on the uh, reliance on sales tax. And at the end of the day, this is this is that scenario playing out in, in real life. Um, so, you know, it, I, I don't know. You and I were talking right before we came on here about how quickly people, <coughs> excuse me, people were going to feel comfortable going back out. So do you, you, you know, if you're a, if you're a municipality, do you plan on 50% people coming out in August? Cause what if it's only 10%? What if, what if even after things reopen, revenue is at, a, at like a quarter of what it ordinarily is? I, you know, I would say it's more likely to be that. I'd say 25% is a lot more likely than 75 or 80. Not only that, but you look around the country right now, New York is near the bottom in terms of opening things back up. I think 40 or more states have begun at least some sort of reopening. So when we talk about this tourism, what you're going to see is New Yorkers wanting to go to other places that are further along the normalcy scale. I I, I mean, who's going to want to come to New York? When, when we're the last place to be opened up towards some kind of normal. I, if I were the tourism director in Ohio or something, and Ohio's opening things up, I'd be spending some marketing dollars in New York saying, hey, New Yorkers, you can't do anything where you are. You're locked up by your governor. Come to Ohio and enjoy yourself. I, I think I, that's why I've been saying that the effects of this economically uh, you know, five years out, ten years out, we may still be dealing with the fallout. And then meanwhile, we have the federal government showering money all over everybody. And that's great as a short-term stopgap, but how do we pay for it? It's interesting. And one of the one of those safety nets that has been the most uh, taxed, I'd say, over the last uh, 45 days, obviously, has been unemployment. Um, so... There were a couple really interesting reports this week, one of which was from city and state, uh, which which showed just how archaic and broken unemployment is in New York state. So parts of the unemployment system date back to the 1970s. Uh, right now, we've still got 90,000 in uh, what's been affectionately referred to online as pending purgatory, meaning the people who have filed applications with the unemployment office, the Department of Labor, uh, and they're in that pending status. They haven't heard from anybody. They've taken and done steps, done things they're supposed to do and nothing's happened, um, which I think is feeding that we need to get back to work uh, argument, uh, frankly. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo said lawmakers who are calling for an investigation into the Department of Labor uh, of playing politics. Uh, so we have that happening. And then we have the the most Interesting, I think, of all the data points that have come out recently, which shows that this is definitely not just a a New York problem, but a a whole United States problem. 33.3 million uh, jobless claims in the last month or so. 
And Pew Research shows that as much as 71% of Americans who filed for unemployment in March still had not received any payment, a single payment in New in the entire U.S. as of late April. So that's a month. So it isn't just a New York problem, but clearly there's been a lack of investment uh, over the years, especially in, say, the last maybe four, five, six, to get ready for a situation where we could see even, you know, even a recession to the scale that we saw in 2008. Frankly, I don't think our systems would have been able to handle that. Uh, but this is obviously at a much greater, uh, a much greater scale than that. Um, it, where do we go from here, I guess, on the unemployment side? Because it seems like we're into this, this part of the argument, this part of the debate has gotten very uh, political, especially with the governor giving his daily briefings. Uh, his secretary, Ms. Melissa DeRosa, has been giving uh, explanations as to what's going on with DOL, but it doesn't change the fact that you still have a ton of people, especially people who who were more apt to be falling through the cracks in the, to begin with when you shut down the entire economy, those sole proprietorships, those small businesses with only one or two employees, that those people aren't eligible for the traditional unemployment benefits. So they had to go through this PUA system and the PUA system seems really complicated and bogged down and broken. We don't have anything that works. Well, you know, if we can recruit Bill Gates to reimagine the entire educational system, why can't we recruit some of his millions to put in better infrastructure? I I mean, I just, again, I go back to we have companies like Google and Amazon. You know, Amazon, you can still order something from halfway across the globe and have it on your front porch in a couple of days. That, but that's only part of it. The infrastructure is one part. The other part is why are we asking people for this obscure employer ID number that most people don't even know what they're talking about? Maybe if you, you know, I'm a one of these really record-keeping kind of guys, so I know what it is, and I know where it's on line 14, I think it is, of your W-2 form, so I know what it is and where to find it. But it just it doesn't seem like there's... I always talk about politicians wanting to be seen as doing something. I think our governor could better spend an hour or so of his time each day working on these problems and rattling some cages instead of his self-serving hour-long briefings where he mostly touts his own brilliance and has the audacity to say that anybody that points out where he's coming up short is guilty of playing politics. Yeah, it's to me, those briefings at this point have have boiled down to the the most interesting portion of them is when uh, the reporters ask him questions. That's when we get sort of the off the cuff answers and the things that, you know, aren't baked into these daily briefings. Um, You know, I don't want to fault the governor for the way he's handled the situation, because I think he's been pretty clear throughout the process that they basically took a stab in the dark at how how to address everything. Right. Like it wasn't. You know, there was no playbook for this. It's not exactly. It's not easy to ramp up from zero and suddenly say, in a state of twenty million people, we're going to send seventeen million of you checks, and you're all going to get them next week. I understand that. But where I don't find where I I can't excuse it is where you have like 
example after example after example of long-term just ignoring the problem. You know, that, that story in City and State is fascinating because it actually shows that in 20, either 2015 or 2016, an RFP went out for a new unemployment website, an updated system. The, the, the computer system, the, the, the actual IT that runs unemployment in New York State, uh, some of those computers require nightly reboots. I mean, it is 2020. That is absurd. This is like to, to imagine that our technology is that archaic in, in a system that's that important. Even if you don't ordinarily see a ton of volume, you, you build these things for the worst case scenario. I'm sorry. I'm so tired of listening to people say, and thankfully it's quieted down a little bit, but the people who said we can't build hospital systems to be ready for a pandemic. All right. Well, then you're not going to be ready for a pandemic when right. a pandemic does happen. And that just means you're putting profit over actual function in a healthcare system, which, fine, if that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. But say that's what it is and make that point. Own that if you're going to own something. And I'm not saying socialized medicine. I'm just saying right. make smart investments along the way so that you're not stripping hospitals of rooms and you're not downsizing, downsizing, downsizing. So in a community like Seneca County, or if you live in a place like Schuyler County or Ontario County, you have to drive, you know, 30 plus minutes to get to a hospital that can actually save your life, not just a hospital that, you know, can do 20 or so things. And then you have to be redirected up to strong or Rochester general or upstate in Syracuse. It's going to be fascinating for historians a hundred years from now to look back at this. Cause we were talking just before we came on this morning about, you know, a lot of our themes in, in BC before COVID were about thinking long-term and, and the way society's evolving. And what this virus has done is kind of laid bare how ill-prepared we are for a lot of things and, and how little thought we've given to the way we deliver medicine, the way we house people, the way we get transportation, our education, our government, and its openness or lack of it. All these things are sort of being laid bare, and I don't see a lot of real effort being made to say, boy, we got a lot of work to do. It's just the daily it's right back to that day-to-day, what's the count today? How many more new people? You know, like you said, we're all sick of it. I just, I turn my own station off when I get the, you know, three more people here and 27 more, you know. Okay, we get that part. What are we going to do about it? Yep. What are we going to do so it won't happen later? What are we going to do about the next threat? You know, mm-hmm. I, I keep saying our most vulnerability are to terrorism is internet and and IT uh, and infrastructure. <laughs> I, and I mean, health, imagine, as especially right now, imagine now with this outbreak, if the internet was down for two weeks all across America, yeah. just uh, what would we do? Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about education because that's sort of the, the other arm of this that has gotten really interesting. Uh, Governor Cuomo did, as you mentioned earlier, tap uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, their foundation, to help New York reimagine education across the state. Uh, That drew harsh criticism uh, from some. 
Uh, others, like the American Federation of Teachers, outlined their own expectations for this fall, uh, which include class sizes of 12 to 15 students, split scheduling so students aren't on site every day, limitations on school visitors, modifications to transportation and school building usage, uh, and the creation of portable classrooms, which I think is really interesting. Opposition has been really loud with Democrats and Republicans. Pretty much everyone is skeptical of this idea, mainly because of how it was prefaced, right? Because it's been prefaced with this this argument that, guess what? School districts, you're going to have to make gigantic budget cuts. And outside of just stopping school, uh, frankly, the degree to which some districts would have to cut, it wouldn't even be, it's not even feasible to continue doing education. So what do you do? You, I guess you end up having to do something like what uh, the governor is suggesting uh, where he's he's made some not so thinly veiled uh, suggestions this week that maybe schools shouldn't have buildings, which is just absurd. It's just insane, and I am not sh- I am no I am no expert in this territory at all, um, but I find it interesting that after roughly two decades of opposition and uh, pushback from the state government at all levels, including. Uh, the governor himself to moving forward with any kind of like technological assist in this whole process. Suddenly, technology is the best thing in the world. And why haven't we been using it for years? This is just, he's sitting there saying, wow, this is insane. We have this great, it's been there the whole time. So my question is now, you're going to haphazardly throw together, or let me rephrase that. A couple billionaires and a governor of a state of 19.4 million are going to reinvent the education, the K through 12 educational experience in two months because it's May now and this this year is kind of shot. So you're not going to be making any meaningful steps now. So you've got like June and July and by August, you got to be implementing because guess what? Kids are going back to school this fall in some way, shape or form. Uh, and that to me is a recipe for real disaster. And not to mention the fact that it completely disregards the fact that uh, education or I should say schools, our K through 12 schools have become daycare facilities more than they have anything else. And it was interesting. I, I said this on Twitter yesterday um, because I've been working on a couple a couple stories in this, in this arena and talking to different parents and different teachers and things like that quietly behind the scenes because another part of this is that no one really wants to talk about this right now. Um, but the overwhelming sentiment is fix access to childcare and all of a sudden you can do wild and crazy things, innovative things in education, if you do that. But you have to take that first step. You have to fix childcare. And it's interesting because how functional is our economy going to be this fall if Governor Cuomo says, sorry, uh, student A, B, C, and D, you guys are going to alternate what days you're going to school and your parents are going to have to figure out what to do with you on those days when you're sitting home. Well, we've already seen this with the shift in many school districts to uh, grouping students by grade. So now suddenly, instead of if you live here, all your kids go to this elementary school, now the first grader goes to this one, 
the fourth grader goes to this one, and I've got a band concert over here and a band concert over here. Having this conversation is a great idea. The problem is having it take place with Andrew Cuomo and Bill and Melinda Gates and no one else, and no educational authorities are brought in. And then, I mean, like you said, and, and, and you, you freighted it very well, is you have to look at the whole picture. You can't just suddenly say, we're going to go to split schedules, and we're going to, you know, where's all this money going to come from with completely starved governments to double the size of our schools? Or how do I bus 40 kids to a school if I can only put 15 kids on the 40-seat bus so they're all six feet apart? I mean... It's just, it's all absurd. We, we should have this conversation, but it needs to be a, a widespread conversation, and it needs to involve everybody, and it, it needs to take some time. And then the other problem we get into is anytime we have these kinds of conversations is all the advocacy groups come in, the teachers' unions want what they want, and everybody wants what they want. You know, it's like the the day after the budget comes out every year, we're bombarded with 75 news releases from every interest group in New York about how they came up short. I, I mean, it's a great conversation to have. I, I think it's, we, we always, at some point in these conversations, we always go back to the big picture and longer term. We need to take a whole broad look at the way we live as a society and the way we want to live and how we're going to live. Because you can't just look at education separately because, as you said, education is now a daycare service. It's now the primary feeding service for a lot of families. So if we're going to reimagine anything, we need to reimagine what American society is going to look like and, and needs to look like in 10 and 20 and 50 years from now. I would simply direct anybody who's skeptical about what I'm saying to go back to about a week and a half ago uh, when the governor was taking questions about reopening small businesses, reopening businesses in general, reopening the economy. Uh, he said very candidly, you can't reopen the economy without reopening schools. And he then went into a fairly lengthy explanation about what we just talked about, schools or daycare. How are people going to go to work if they don't have a place for their kids to go? And now... He, having acknowledged that a week ago, is saying, oh, yeah, kids aren't going to go to school this fall. Maybe they'll never go back to school again. Maybe and we'll frankly, just keep doing this. Maybe we'll keep doing this homeschool thing forever. It's a great idea. Right. So we're, he's telling us that in a state that can't set up a working unemployment computer <laughs> system, that we're going to teach all our kids on computers. I hope it's not the same ones that the unemployment department uses. And also, by the way, to all of my friends on, on uh on the, the left side of, of the political spectrum, I am very curious why there seems to be this, this excitement around a billionaire uh, leading the charge on reimagining uh, education right. in and, New and York State. A billionaire who's known to be an advocate of privatization. I mean, that's normally the Republican bailiwick. Right? It's, it's a little surprising to see a liberal Democratic governor partnering with somebody who would just as soon do away with public schools and make them all private for profit. Maybe, a skeptic might say, maybe that's the idea behind this, is mm. to make public schools so broken and so unworkable that they throw their hands up in the air and somebody comes in and says, I can fix it with for-profit schools. Oof. 
<laughs> don't don't say that too loud. Um, so let's talk about another uh, caveat of of government dysfunction here. Uh, so our daily debrief yesterday, which we had no idea was going to be so timely, and it wound up being really timely, uh, it focused on public hearings and how they might change moving forward. Uh, environmental reporter Peter Mantius joined me. He and I talked about public hearings. It was sort of framed around the context of a lot of the solar and wind projects, but also uh, the Butler Sludge uh, processing facility that was proposed uh, in Butler, in Wayne County. Uh, but there was the last major meeting in the region that had a huge turnout. So you had like 100 plus people turn out to this little tiny room on March 9th, and they packed in there, um, obviously days before the, the whole state effectively shut down. So the conversation kind of wandered around the whole concept of what would have to change to avoid large crowds in small places and how can you continue to get input from uh, from members of the community, from taxpayers on a lot of those hot button issues where you would ordinarily see big turnout. Well, we have a story online now as multiple local governing bodies have really, really, really struggled to adapt uh, to these new digital sessions that we're seeing happen on Zoom, YouTube, uh, other plat streaming platforms like Vimeo, um, WebEx, like whatever, pick your poison. They've, they've, there's been pretty much a bad example of all of the above. So obviously people can't go to meetings right now. The public can't go to meetings. So a lot of these councils, boards of supervisors, legislatures have streamed them or held virtual sessions that the public can uh, basically access. So Geneva City Council this week had to cut their meeting short on Wednesday because of an issue with their feed. They, they described it as a technical issue with Finger Lakes TV, which is operated by Finger Lakes Community College. Uh, so that meeting, shortly after, really, it was they hadn't even quite gotten halfway through the agenda, uh, had to be killed. Um, so then fast forward to Thursday, and the Ontario County Board of Supervisors was supposed to meet. And as it turned out, the... Uh, video conferencing links that they provided in the agenda, put on their website, and put in other places didn't work. The meeting code and the meeting password also did not work. Uh, we know all of this because one of our reporters, Todd Elsey, uh, covers Canandaigua City Council, Geneva City Council, and the Ontario County Board of Supervisors, all of which the last three meetings now that he's tried to cover, two of the Ontario County Board of Supervisors, and now Geneva City Council has experienced this technical issue that's rendered it effectively inaccessible to the public. So, raises this question. Is it legal? Does it stand up? Do any of these meetings actually stand up in the grand scheme of things? We reached out to Kristen O'Neill of the Committee on Open Government this morning in Albany, uh, and she got back to us with this quote. I'm going to read this directly from, from her. Uh, in my view, if the public body is aware that problems with technology have prevented the public from being able to remotely access the meeting, it should postpone until the problems have been corrected. It would be like having a meeting in town hall with the doors locked. She noted that noncompliance with open meeting laws like this uh, or issues like this could arise to Article 78 challenges. Uh, and, and it's interesting because... It flies in the face of what I have been saying effectively since this started, which is that government needs to keep going. They need to keep doing these important things. They need to, but they can't because anything they do right now 
can be challenged and probably as we go down the line probably will be challenged in some cases so it's this really awkward situation um there were also some questions with canandaigua city council about whether they were uh, giving proper public notice uh, to some of those sessions as well a couple special meetings that were held in april Obviously, everyone is dealing with really unusual circumstances right now, but it's interesting to me. Uh, I think, this is my opinion, I think a lot of these boards and city councilors are going to have to go back to having in-person meetings that are at least open to some members of the public sooner than later. They will have to hold them in large spaces, hold them at a school, hold them at a rec center, hold them wherever you want. Sorry, Geneva City Council, you can't have your your meeting in this small, cramped Geneva City Court anymore. you got to venture outside into a larger space. Um, But at the end of the day, it's better for everybody. You know, like getting government right now is the most important thing that any government could be doing, especially local municipalities. And this is one of the ways that it could really derail them really quickly, and I'm talking about all boards in general, if they aren't covering all of their bases. Now, the the opposite side of that spectrum or the opposite side of that coin is that I think it's great that boards have uh, created digital access for those who can't physically make it to the meeting. Um, And I think that should continue no matter what, because yes, it's 2020 and you shouldn't have to show up to uh, be able to see what's happening in your community. But at the same time, um, you you have to, at minimum, be able to access that meeting. Well, I I think, um, you know, as as the the committee at open meetings says, if if the only way for someone to quote, attend the meeting is electronically, and that gets shut off, the meeting has to end. I mean, that seems to be a pretty simple proposition. But but no, this issue and a number of the other ones we've talked about are all premised around the idea that we can never again or anytime soon have large gatherings of people. Here's a radical idea. Maybe we have to. Maybe it's not a realistic societal goal to say we can never have a bunch of people in a room again. Maybe we need to, and we need to, if we have to take people's temperatures or put a bunch of sinks and a lot of soap every place we go to wash hands, or everyone has to wear masks, whatever. I mean, I have my whole opinions about this corona outbreak that I'll keep to myself if I can hold myself. But maybe it's just not workable to continue a society where there are no gatherings of people. I I don't see how you do it. It's tough. It's going to be really tough. And I, I think a lot of the questions that I've been seeing on social media are fair. A lot of the questions about, you know, process and, you know, there isn't really a rule book for this. And, you know, in some of my other exchanges with uh, the Committee on Open Government for various other stories have made it very clear. Like we have we have a traditional rule book. And when you start to venture outside of that playbook, you are going to get into complications. And with all this technology, we need to keep in mind, too, that we live in a relatively poor rural part of the state where not everybody has a tablet and not everybody has decent internet. I had Assemblyman Brian Manktelow on my show the other day. He lives right outside of Lyons, I think. He doesn't have internet. He can't get internet at his home other than on his phone with his data plan. 
Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this whole idea of electronic education, my understanding is that it's mostly been a joke. And I, I've said many times, I don't, I don't hold the teachers responsible. I don't hold the schools responsible. I'm not casting aspersions in any of them, simply that they weren't <clears throat> equipped to do this. In many homes, there isn't internet or isn't a computer or there isn't a parent or a figure to make sure that they're getting whatever education there is. Even at the college level, I, my understanding is some students are saying, you know, this professor, yeah, I've heard from this other professor. I haven't even heard from him since this has started. So, it, you know, technology can only do so much. And, and for it to work, you have to have it. And not everybody in this part of the Finger Lakes even has access to it. Yeah, so so let's get into it because we're going to touch a couple of those different topics uh, with some questions that we got from readers. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I finally got around to cleaning out that inbox. Um, it's not something that I do regularly, unfortunately. <laughs> um, first one's an easy one, and I want to give it to you. Uh, Mike and Auburn S. are the double days going to survive the pandemic and the shrinking of the MILB? I think it's now a lot less likely than it was because everybody's going to be looking for a way to save costs. The, the relationship between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball has always been kind of a tricky one. MLB relies on the minors for player development. They don't care whether it's an Auburn Double Days. They don't care whether there's a Syracuse Mets or whatever. They just need that supply of players, unlike, for example, the NFL, where the colleges serve that purpose. So for a lot of years, Major League Baseball has been saying, you know what, why don't we just move all of it to a big complex in Florida and let them play games all day long? So I think that, because as I said, I think anybody that thinks we're going to have sports as normal is crazy. The NFL just announced their schedule. Great, they're going to start on Thursday, September 10th, and then they're going to play a 16-week schedule. What are the chances that they can get through that without a handful of positive tests? You got 53 players per team, support staff, coaches, broadcasters, every vendors in the stadiums, all these people. How many positive tests will it take? You know, here in New York, let's say a member of the Jets or the Bills, well the Jets are technically in New Jersey. So let's say the Bills, a couple of members of the Bills get COVID. You think Andrew Cuomo is going to allow them to keep playing? It's going to shut down. So anyway, bottom line, the financial pressures are going to be there, and Major League Baseball can certainly figure out how to develop its players at much less cost than it costs them now to subsidize these teams. And without that Major League subsidy, especially at the lower levels like short season A, it's not going to happen. So Chances that the Auburn Double Days will never play a game again, I would say better than 50%. Amanda in Fairport asks, why are we seeing some construction operations continue even though they don't appear essential? Uh, this one is pretty easy to answer in my humble opinion. It's because Empire State Development, the governor, uh, the governor's office, I should say, and the various regional leaders in economic development space cannot get on the same page, even though they have tried, it seems. Um, certain projects are seeking out exceptions. They're being granted exceptions. Even from the start, we saw uh, certain car washes 
that had originally supposed to have been included in the non in what was non-essential and be closed, stay open throughout. Um, it it does not. It doesn't appear as though there's, and we also saw a lot of miscommunication. I'll say between the state and golf courses. Um, so all of these, all these huge, huge issues, questions. When you're driving down the road and you see someone's house being worked on, or you see a commercial development being worked on that doesn't appear to be essential to you, they worked around the the fine print and they found a reason to make it essential. There, if you go through the exceptions list. Uh, that Empire State Development and the governor had pushed out weeks ago. There, the the exceptions list was as comprehensive as the essential list that Governor Cuomo touted as being uh, one of the most extreme in the nation. Um, the, at the end of the day, this was this was a a very bizarre pause on certain parts of the economy with plenty, plenty, plenty of loopholes. Well, when the governor first had issued uh, first issued the essential list, nobody could make heads or tails of it. Golf courses were in, and they were out, and they were in. Now we're arguing about carts. Uh, I mean, it, it's seriously. We now have a, a, a lengthy state regulation on golf carts. Which, if by the way, if you're disabled, you can ride in one. You can't have a passenger unless they live in the same household with you. I mean, seriously, when, when we start to need multi-page regulations for golf carts, we're just over the edge. And I think, frankly, a lot of people, and remember, there's little to no enforcement of any of this, other than a few police in New York City arresting people for jogging too close to someone else. There's really little enforcement. So I think you're starting to see some businesses say, what have I got to lose? I'm going to send my crew out to do this roof and let somebody come and complain about it. Yeah, and it's really it's even murky who has the authority to um, to come down and sort of be the authority figure in that situation because on, it seems actually like it isn't in the it isn't in the hands of law enforcement at well, all. Well, and, and nobody the, wants to play that role. Law enforcement yeah. doesn't. No law enforcement officer worth his salt, wants to go around arresting people for not wearing a mask or hassling some construction crew because there's three guys and they're not six feet apart. And that, it's that's, you know, there was just, there's no practical way to do a lot of this stuff. The, the fact is, society in the 21st century is pretty hard to shut down in any comprehensive way that makes any sense to anybody. Well, and plus, it's Department of Health is actually who has the most authority in this situation. And, you know, by the way, they're a little busy right now dealing with the pandemic. Right. So, you know, maybe let's not throw the the that on them as well. So, you know, the that whole thing, I think, has already worked itself out. The, the short answer to Amanda's question in Fairport, um, you know, it's happening, it's going to happen, and we're not going the other way now. It's this... The state does not appear interested in going the other way now, where restrictions are are going in the tightening direction. Jen and Skinny Atlas asks, uh, is an eviction freeze enough for those struggling right now? It seems that this will just create a nightmare scenario on the other side of the freeze period. I think she's referring to a question that maybe we've talked about or maybe we haven't, where rent is there's an eviction freeze through mid-August. What happens on the other side of that date is all of the rent that had been previously missed suddenly due. Uh, the governor did outline that no late payments were allowed. Uh, and then uh, the security deposit that you put down uh, with your landlord can now be used as rent. Um, 
you know, I think there are operational challenges with, with that kind of uh, executive order, but that's not that's not really for me to for me to say. I do think that we're going to have a big issue on the other side of this. Um, you've got a portion of the population that believes people who are landlords are investors, and if they and they should be treated as such, which means that if they lose money, they lose money. Sorry, that's your problem. But a lot of these people are also sort of the last line of defense between housing and homelessness for a lot of people who can't go buy a home because buying a home is really challenging uh, for a lot of different institutional reasons. So in my mind, there's going to be a mess on the other side of this regardless. I think it's something that's probably going to be worked out between individuals and landlords and less between individuals and the state government or federal government. Yeah, I mean, it's another Band-Aid solution, but like you said, a landlord can be someone who owns 200 units, or it could be somebody who bought a duplex and rents it out, and maybe that's half their income. Maybe they're working part-time, and this is, or, or maybe they've quit their job, and they manage four or five units, and that's their income, and now that income's gone. I mean, it, we, we, have, we have compassion for the tenant, but then we turn around and we don't have any compassion for the landlord who now is put in the same boat that the tenant was just in. That's, that's why this whole thing just percolates up through society. And, and all this money, you know, we can give the tenants, let's give the money to pay their rent. At some point, the bill comes due. We are either going to have huge inflation, huge budget deficits, or huge tax increases or all three, maybe it won't be till 2025, but at some point the bill comes due and all this money has to be paid back. Or do we see a significant reduction in the safety nets? Oh, we'll, sure, we'll definitely, we're already seeing that. I mean, the food pantries are out of food. The, yeah. It, I, I mean, in terms of what the government even says it can do up front, it's almost like, I, I could see a scenario where what you're talking about is basically everything keeps going and a bill is, you know, like the the money runs out, so to speak. But the flip side of it is, is that, you know, at some point government decides that it's going to wash its hands of these things because these things are more complicated than it's willing to deal with and the bureaucracy and whatnot. So it's left, you know, we get into more a more unregulated market than one that is super regulated. And then what happens like in November? We have, a, we have a presidential election. We have congressional elections. Who gets blamed? Does Donald Trump and the Republicans get blamed? Does he lose the White House? Do, do Republicans get thrown out of Congress? Or do Democrats get blamed? And, you know, it, it's, it's, we'll have to see what our government looks like after November. I mean, it, it's Everybody wants to help everybody, and, and that's part of it, too, is the whole, it's, everything's a one-size-fits-all solution. So people get stimulus checks whether they need it or not. You, you know, does somebody who has a $300,000 annual income need 1200 bucks as much as someone who's got a $22,000 annual income? No, but they get the same check because, and again, we don't have the infrastructure. You can't check every single person in America and say, okay, what's your situation? What's your situation? So... It's all we're we're throwing band aids on it, and it's still an unknown because it's all up to Andrew Cuomo. He can very well come out in his late morning news conference next Friday and say, "No, not ready." June thirtieth. So one last thing I wanted to touch on: um, Wells College. 
uh, president of Wells College, Jonathan Gibraltar, uh, authored a what I thought was stunning letter uh, to basically alum uh, saying, if students come, don't come back this fall or if students cannot be uh, on campus this fall, we will close. No, no sugarcoating it, no nothing, just facts. And I thought it was interesting because it's we've been having this conversation on the show for a while, how not just the K-12 system is going to be getting crushed here, but also the higher education system. And we have a lot of liberal arts schools around here that would that are susceptible to this kind of uh, this kind of challenge. Um, When we look forward, do we anticipate seeing more schools or more leaders at schools uh, come out with? Strong language like this saying, look, if you know we're largely supported by room and board and incoming freshmen and the money that they're bringing in, if that isn't going to happen soon, we can't, we can't make it a year. We can't make it you know, even a semester without having that uh, income provided. Do, does, that list, does that list grow or do we continue to see maybe some of these institutions just sort of like hoping for the best and moving forward? I think it has to grow. It's they're they're no different than anybody else. If you're a college and you're looking and you owe this much and you've only got this much and you got no students, add to that the fact that that some students are suing to get money back saying I didn't pay for an online, you know, if I want an online course, I can sign up for one of those ones we see on TV, uh, you know, Southern New Hampshire or Arizona State or whoever the ones that have been Maybe they were very uh, prescient in, in beginning to do that. It's going to be one more. I, I, I'm wondering if we're going to see, when we talk about how we're going to live, are we going to live, the, the old joke was that eventually we'd all be in our, our little pod. Is that going to happen? Are we all going to be sitting there shopping on a screen and going to school on a screen and attending the city council meeting on a screen? I don't know. I mean, isn't that as likely a scenario as any other at this point? Pod life. It's coming yeah. for you. And I'm not talking about the podcast pod life. No. Um, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? Well, if they still want to, <laughs> after my opinions, uh, on the Finger Lakes Morning News, which is on Finger Lakes News Radio, in Auburn, that's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB, and in Geneva, it's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>